Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes! Welcome to Lake Kick is Live. It is Tuesday night, December 20th, year of our Lord, 2022. More voices on tonight's show probably than the past year combined. Momentarily, even though he's sitting here right now alongside 24-7 Sports Director of Scouting, Andrew Ivins. I'm Josh Pate. We're jam-packed. We're high atop, surprisingly, and also rainy downtown Nashville, Tennessee. It is, well, it's not Nashville. I mean, it's Fort Lauderdale. It just looks the same as Nashville's look. National Signing Day Eve. We're finally here. We're going to give you everything you could possibly need to know before Head hits pillow tonight, and then we'll be at it for like 28 hours straight tomorrow. Uh, who's about to make a move, classes to keep an eye on, etc. Some wild trends to watch. I got some numbers that blew our mind today, so I'm pretty sure they're going to blow your mind. Also, the Pate State Speaker Series begins tonight. Our friend, and soon to be yours if he's not already, Cole Kublik, going to stop by. And I'm telling you, I spoke to him for about 20, 25 minutes. It, I felt like 25, it goes for like an hour, and it's really good. Some really good behind-the-scenes stuff that you'll love. Boynton Beach, Florida tuned in. North Platte, Nebraska tuned in. Lexington, Kentucky. Horseshoe Bay, Texas. <sighs> I'm ready to dive into National Signing Day. Andrew Ivan's here. We're in Fort Lauderdale. We've got a full slate ahead tomorrow. If you're not already, make sure you're subscribed to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. That's where that entire wall-to-wall coverage is going to be tomorrow. But I want to start with this, and let's zoom it out, and then we'll zoom in as time goes on tonight. As we were looking at some of the trends and some of the numbers as we're heading into this National Signing Day, it's a far cry from what it was like even five years ago, but especially if you grew up on like late 90s, early 2000s recruiting, and that's your wheelhouse. I'm going to throw out a number, and I want you to react to it and tell me why this is the case. Of the top 247 right now, 92% of those kids are already committed. And it's not February. We're talking about before the early signing day, 92, and that number's going to fluctuate, but around 92% of the kids already committed. That's the what? I want to ask you, Andrew Ivins, why is that the case? I got two theories. All right, the first one is this current NIL landscape. I think with the collectives, these schools figuring out different packages, they have as much leverage as ever, right? They can twist some arms, get guys in place. Hey, take it now or we're moving on. So I think guys have made decisions a lot earlier. I also think schools with the transfer portal, current landscape with college football in general, with these transfer portal windows, the movement, the one-time transfer, schools want to know what they have to go and get out in the portal is it is it a veteran at this position is it a veteran at, at that exp, uh, at another position uh, but really i think it's the whole nil stuff an example i'll give you mark fletcher top 247 running back he announces on sunday night that he's going to commit to miami he's going to sign with miami i think in years past yep. he's announcing on wednesday Slam dunk. probably on our show yep. but miami got him on that official visit hey we need to know now or or maybe what we've put together for you isn't going to be there. It's wild, man, when you insert NIL, when you insert actual skin in the game, which a lot of people are going to be in the comment section saying always has happened. To some degree, 
I will grant you that, certainly never on the scale that it happens now and using the methodology that we're using now. I don't have to go behind this curtain here and turn the lights off to talk to you about this. I can tell you like Andrew Ivins, four-star linebacker, I like you at Pate State, but I like you tonight. I don't like you 72 hours from now because I'm putting X amount of dollars on the line for you. And if I'm gonna do that, the least you could do is give me a firm answer because I got portal to worry about. I've got a hard number to worry about on my yeah, roster. You're managing a yeah. salary cap, right? It's a fluctuating scale by position. Salary cap, yeah, you yeah, just use exactly. that term, huh? Yeah. yeah. So here's the other thing. Uh, Cooper Patagna is probably just behind this wall right now. He threw out another theory today that I think we're gonna get into a lot tomorrow as the day goes on, and that's the calendar sped up. Yeah. We have an early signing day, but also because of that early signing day, as we've seen over the last several cycles, because it's been a few cycles in now, we got a pretty big case study on how this works. Well, now a lot of kids take their official visits in the summer. It used to be, I mean, you know this as well as anyone, this was the time of year. Guys wanted to get through state championship games, yep. get through Christmas. January was like the hardcore official visit season, and you're going to have a month lead up until that February signing day. People are doing that eight or nine months ahead of schedule now, and some kids, NIL or not, they just flat out know where they want to go. Well, think about it like this. You used to want that last face-to-face -face yeah. official visit, you know, the last weekend. I mean, what if you're playing in a bowl game now? We saw it with Florida. They, they were out in the Las Vegas Bowl. Their big recruiting weekend got moved up. And so many of these schools are now doing it in June, right? J July 4th is essentially turned into, like, signing day light, all those announcements then. And, and, and you mentioned five years ago. Think about when a spring official visits and, and summer official visits first became a thing, everyone's kind of one foot in the water. I don't know if I want to do this. Right. But now all these kids who were in middle school and saw the guys at their high school at these big powerhouses take the official visits then, well, it's, hey, I want to do that. You know, I want to get this recruiting process started. And it's really just created this situation where, you know, Tomorrow there's going to be some big announcements, but most of the drama is probably going to be some last-minute flips from kids that are already committed to certain schools. Here's what's fun. So I know a lot of people who are watching tomorrow have been paying attention to the kids who are going to put pen to paper for four years, like we have. There is this other swath of the country that is not a casual, but may follow recruiting in a more casual manner. And so they're not just interested in what's happening tomorrow. They're interested in what led up to it. And they're also interested in, if you will, the storyline aspect of not only what's happening, but what does it mean? So I know where my mind is, but I want to ask you first, as you sort of survey the landscape, players, classes, coaches, what has your attention as we head into tomorrow? Well, I thought tomorrow morning was all about Caden Proctor, right? Our number one offensive tackle. He announces that he has flipped from Alabama to Iowa a few hours ago. So that kind of took a little, little out of this. Um, Alabama, we've crunched the numbers with the class calculator. It seems like they're going to have the number one class. How, hot, how good can that class get? We'll see. It could be Nick Saban's best class ever, but they're probably going to finish with that number one class for the 10th time in 13 years. What I'm really focused on, and you know, Cooper, other people in the company call me the Prince of Florida down here uh, in the Sunshine State, but the big three, I think there's a ton of drama out there, right? Florida State, Miami, they're battling for some guys. Miami, Florida battling, or, or Florida State, in Florida battling for some guys. I mean, there's a ton of different storylines, and you've got all these powerful recruiters that were brought in, Billy Napier in Gainesville, Mario Cristobal down in Coral Gables, and then Mike Norvell, who just had his best season yet, and he's really kind of mastered that transfer portal. I think there's going to be a ton of storylines and a ton of drama in the Sunshine State tomorrow. Yeah, so anyone who watches this show knows this is a pretty familiar theme. 
on Lake Kick. We talk about in-state recruiting in Cali, Texas, and Florida, and you may think, yeah, big deal. Everyone talks about those states. We were just upstairs before we came down here to the studio, and I thought you made a really good point, and we'll just, we'll just put it on air now. Caden Proctor, big-time five-star offensive tackle. You just mentioned him. He was committed to Iowa as of today, no longer. He is committed to Alabama, going to sign with Alabama tomorrow. And then you said, that's not Nick Saban's fault, man. That's Mario Cristobal's fault. And that makes no sense to someone who does not follow at a more granular level right. the dominoes in college football recruiting. So lay it out in parade detail. <laughs> How does Bama flipping a five-star tackle from Iowa have Mario Cristobal's fingerprints on it? Well, if I'm an Iowa fan, I'm going to sleep pissed off that Miami hired Mario Cristobal. And I'm, I'm pissed off about the current landscape of this whole thing, right? Mario Cristobal was brought to Miami to win some big recruiting battles. He's gone out and done that. He got the number one, or sorry, the number two offensive tackle, Francis Mauagoa, kid at IMG Academy. In the past, that kid always goes to Alabama. J.C. Latham, Evan Neal, Tyler Booker. No, Mario Cristobal's got him. Samson Okunlola up in Massachusetts. There was a time when we thought he might end up at Alabama, right? That came right down to what, Florida with Billy Napier and, and, and Miami and Mario Cristobal. So Mario is a, is a offensive line coach at heart. He's also a guy that understands recruiting is the lifeline of your program. He's a tireless recruiter. We talk about all that, that all the time. And he's come in and he's taken guys that Bama normally gets and he's evening out that, that playing field. So I think when Alabama realized, hey, we're a little bit depleted on the offensive line. Like we think Caden Proctor might have to play in 2023. As crazy as that sounds, yep. Alabama is, is down on numbers. So when they went to look, hey, what can we go get? The guy they circled wasn't Francis Mauagoa at that traditional Alabama stronghold, IMG Academy. No, they, they went to Caden Proctor there in Iowa. Yeah, and I want to reiterate now, you may think to yourself watching the show tonight, ah, recruiting, I could take it or leave it. I just care when the games start in the fall. Well, I guarantee you, if even if you are of that mentality, there's a large swath of the college football public that has said over the past five years, I'm tired of Clemson always being near the top. I'm tired of Ohio State near, always being near the top. And the thing about it is if you dive into the rosters, there's a whole lot of South Florida on it. There's a whole lot of state of Florida on it. And so I'm looking at our 24-7 sports team rankings right now. As we go into tomorrow, Clemson's got a good class. They're sitting there at 10th overall. Ohio State's got a good class. They're 7th overall. You never know what the difference is in not being able to land, let's say, two or three Florida kids that once upon a time you would have been able to land. Because when we turn these playoff games on, you're watching big-time players make big-time plays. Age-old adage, and you mm -hmm. see it. Disproportionately, a lot of those kids are from Florida. And you never know one or two cycles in a row. You miss out on one or two that you would have had. Instead of finishing third in the country, you finish seventh in the country. Still a good class. But when it gets down to the devil and the details, the focus and the premium that's been placed on recruiting in Florida, not only by the University of, but also by Miami, and then you got Florida State there as well, it's not as easy. It's not to say you can't have success here, but it's no longer easy. And if you want to know the key to parity and competitive balance in this sport, it's always been that. It's been my opinion, at least. You don't expand the playoff necessarily. That's not how you get it. You get it by having someone in Coral Gables, Florida, that knows how to recruit South Florida. Uh, ditto for Gainesville, Florida. And then... You do that in College Station in Austin, you do it in LA, and you keep in-state talent in those strongholds home and no longer just, see ya, I'm going to Ohio State, see ya, I'm going to Tuscaloosa, I'm going to Clemson. All of a sudden, man, the playoff could look kind of like it does this year, a lot of years. Yeah, and, and Cooper pointed it out in our pre-production meeting. Sure. Uh, 
Miami, 17, I think, commitment from the state of Florida. Florida, 15. Right. I mean, in previous years, these guys are going to the SEC. They're going to go play usually at Alabama, usually at Georgia. And then we saw Texas A&M last cycle. Remember Shamar Stewart on our signing day show uh, picking the Aggies? I mean, both those teams have done a great job in their backyards, and they're also recruiting nationally a little bit, getting outside of state borders. LSU is fifth right now, headed into tomorrow. Notre Dame is sixth right now. And I remember doing a segment on this show back in the winter, springtime period. It's when a lot of people were having fun, dunking on Brian Kelly a little bit. Uh, they're not doing that so much anymore because the guy just played for a conference title in his first year, and he's sitting on the precipice of landing a top-five class. I said in February or March, I thought it was a win-win. I think Notre Dame folks are happy. They're still happy. I think LSU folks were happy. They're still happy. I think what's taken some people by surprise is there was a prevailing thought out there, to some degree at least, that Brian Kelly wasn't really interested in recruiting when he was at Notre Dame. And he didn't really have that gene in him, that DNA you needed to have to ever go recruit with the big dogs down south. And I look at it, clearly not true, or else it's a new Brian Kelly. And I don't think he reinvented himself at this age. I just think there may have been some things, some parts in him that he wanted to come out that he thought weren't possible at Notre Dame. Look, you, you can look at Freeman doing what he's doing all you want to right now. You're not about to tell me they didn't make some tweaks internally when Marcus Freeman came in to allow him to do what he's doing right now. So I'm looking at Freeman at number six. I'm looking at Kelly at number five right now. Could still make some moves tomorrow at both programs. Man, it's so funny when you just rewind a few months. Uh, Marcus Freeman, never done it as a head coach. We'll see what he does. And then they start, what, three and three. And so people are wondering if they're ever going to make a bowl game. Are they going to hold this recruiting class together? Well, here they are. National Signing Day Eve, both in the top six. And they're going to have to play some defense, though. Peyton Bowen, that's a big recruitment. Steve Wolfong just put out there that he thinks there's a good chance Notre Dame's going to win for a second time in that recruitment. He's the top 247 safety out of Texas. You know, there's been Oklahoma's involved, a ton of other schools involved there. With LSU, I look at their class, and the strength of it to me is that offensive line group. And that's not surprising. We know what Brian Kelly did when he was at Notre Dame. I think yep. it was nine offensive linemen that went in the first two rounds. I mean, we love the group he's got committed. Zalance Hurd, DJ Chester, Tyree Adams, Paul Mapinga. I mean, they got a ton of guys that we think can start in the SEC. You add that to what they already have in Emory Jones, Will Campbell. I mean, that, that unit looks completely different than Alabama's right now. And I think two years ago, Josh, if I told you that, you'd be like, you're crazy. No, well, absolutely, because the 2019 team at LSU, which is so historic, I think people forget because the team, I think, won the Joe Moore Award. Coming into the season, offensive line was viewed as a big question mark. I mean, that was the Achilles heel that may hold them back, and as it turned out, that wasn't the case. Here's why people thought that, because that had been the case with LSU football for quite a while. And so, like you just said, if you were to say, hey, Bama recruiting is not really going to fall off, by the way. It's just that we're going to be making that kind of statement a couple, three years down the road about LSU. I would have either thought Ed Orgeron has really gotten his act together <laughs> or something along the lines of what has happened ended up happening. Um, are there any other classes before? I, I want to zoom in on the SEC in just a second. So maybe outside the SEC, you know, if you look up and down this list, I don't know how you could overlook what Texas and Steve Sarkeesian are doing. Uh, they've made some noise in the past week, and it's, it's a class we were talking about last year that really loaded up on the offensive line. Uh, it's, it's a line of scrimmage conversation. Anytime you talk about them and Oklahoma eventually coming to the SEC, they continue to validate themselves this time of year very well. Well, that's the point I was going to bring up. I mean, most of these kids are going to be 2024 
had a year already on campus, they're going to be playing in the SEC yep. at Texas. And their class right now ranks number four. It would be number three in the SEC behind who? Alabama and Georgia. Uh, you know, we talk at length about Arch Manning on these airwaves. Cedric Baxter, I don't think, is discussed enough. The running back, Florida State, made a late push there. He's our number two running back in the country. And I was having a conversation with someone today. I fully expect him to play, you know, year one. Running back's the position we saw this year on the field where true freshmen were making an impact, and it just wasn't Quinshawn Judkins at Ole Miss. There was kids all around the country, and some kids that weren't even that highly ranked coming out. So Cedric Baxter, you know, obviously he's got an NIL type NIL deal. You know, you don't think he's going to play. Right. You don't think with Bajan Robinson on the way out there in Austin. Uh, Oklahoma's class as well, number eight. It would be number five in the SEC. We love what Brent Venables is doing on the defensive side of the ball. Still some big fish out there to, to, to Sully Okana, the edge rusher right outside our top 32. He's going to make a decision tomorrow, hopefully on CBS Sports HQ. If we can get that thing pulled together, Oklahoma's still the favorite there. That'd be a big addition to already what they have in that front seven. He's turning things around there when it comes to talent. Late kick stats and info um, with a hat tip to Cooper Patagna. Just pointing out earlier today, 46%. Let me end that sentence and let me start it over. If you include OU in Texas, future SEC member institutions, in this equation, 46% of the top 247 is currently committed in the SEC footprint, and that's before signing day tomorrow. And that's part one. Part two is if you pull up these team rankings right now and you count OU in Texas, 10 of the top 20 classes, I think I counted like 12 of the top 26, are made up of, of SEC programs. And then you got some Notre Dame, some Ohio State littered in there, Penn State right now at number 12. But it's just kind of interesting in that there's conference realignment and everyone's talking about who's going where. But that one stat, the chokehold, the SEC, uh, with a few exceptions, seems to have this time of year, that's not really going anywhere anytime soon. No, and TV deals are obviously a big big reason in all this thing, but I think Texas, Oklahoma moving to the SEC, it expands your footprint, allows yep. you to get in some areas you weren't before. Cedric Baxter's in Orlando. Texas traditionally has not gone into the Sunshine State. It has been a long time since they pulled a blue chipper out of Florida, Miami, and Florida State's backyard. Look at Texas A&M when they moved in the SEC. That allowed them to get a little more national. You're seeing it with USC and UCLA, who just got Dante Moore, right? They got him from up in Michigan. I think Dante Moore, it made the decision to go to Los Angeles a lot easier knowing, hey, I'm going to play some, some games in the Midwest at some point down the line. So i got to do this, um, much to the chagrin of a portion of the audience. There's a, there's a large chunk of the audience that loves when I talk about this. There's a portion that despises it. Um, Dion took the job at Colorado. Uh, so for anyone unaware, that happened. Now, here's my feel on this. You tell me if you think I'm wrong. My feel is not a lot of people nationally have followed the day-to-day -day since he got there. They just know he took the job. They know this time last year he flipped Travis Hunter out of nowhere from Florida State to Jackson State. So they're putting two and two together. Dion's at a Power 5 school now. Uh, he's had a couple of weeks. Signing day's tomorrow something explosive has got to happen. And I can understand people feeling that way. So now I ask you, because you're a little more in the weeds, you followed the visits. You know if that were to happen, who the names would be, how realistic is it that we've got Dion in Colorado on the front burner tomorrow for a large portion of the day, like Jackson State ended up being last year? What if I told you it might not be a big day for Colorado? I would lean in and I would say continue. <laughs> 
Dion chalked it up or primed it up as I'm having one of the biggest recruiting weekends ever, right? It was it was a little difficult to figure out who exactly was on campus. Malachi Coleman, top 247 athlete. He was one of the visitors. Bakari Swain, top 247 athlete out of Georgia that's committed to South Carolina. He visited as well. And there was a bunch of others. Bo Hewley, top right. 247 offensive tackle from Georgia. Well, it sounds like Malachi Coleman, according to Steve Wiltfong, he might end up committing back to Nebraska. That's a kid right there in Lincoln. Vakari Swain doesn't look like, hey, he's going to flip. He might stick with South Carolina. And Bo Hewley, according to Rusty Manziel uh, over at Dogs 247, he expects Bo Hewley to sign with the Bulldogs. So, yes, maybe there's some other big ones out there. We thought Dion was going to have this huge surprise, right? We, we were going to see another Travis Hunter. And there might be one out there. I mean, we, we were sitting in the war room. We've gone through our top 100, hey, who could Dion be quietly working behind the scenes? Richard Young, for example, uh, a top five running back in this class, longtime Alabama commit. He's from that Fort Myers area. You know, Dion Sanders is from, from there. Could he be the guy that you know, Dion shocks us with tomorrow when, on Wednesday? Maybe. Zachariah Branch is one where I put the tinfoil ten, ten hat on. His, his, his grandfather, Cliff Branch, played. At, at Colorado, I don't think that's going to happen. It's got to be. It's got to be a name that comes out of nowhere, right? It may. It may but, not but, even but be a name that's coming out of your mouth. Prep, what if that doesn't happen? No, if it doesn't happen, that's an entirely different road. And it, here's what's crazy, and I literally think it's crazy, but possible is if nothing happens tomorrow, if it's just kind of a fizzle instead of a bang, you will have people totally unfairly, but you will have people already talking about Deion Sanders and casting early judgment, probably the same crowd that told you Brian Kelly wouldn't be able to recruit at LSU will have dumped that narrative and they will have adopted the new narrative of, well, Dion had two weeks. You know, if you, if you can't put together a signing class in two weeks, then... I, I, I think you got to point out, Colorado has never finished with a re- recruiting class ranked higher than or lower than 35th, better than 35th. And that's with entire cycles yeah. to work instead and, of and, two and weeks. In 2012, I, I just think... You know, if, if Dion was somewhere else, it'd be a lot easier, right? Colorado's kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, for some of the guys that he's gone after in the southeast, and we've seen him try to tap into the west coast, it's, I, I think maybe this is a little bit more difficult than we thought. Now, give him a full year, and I think they're going to do great in the transfer portal. I think that he's going to get guys from the junior college ranks. He's been very active there as well, but I'm just I – don't, I don't know if I see – some big surprise. And I could be eating my words. I could be clipped right now by Colorado's <laughs> football department tomorrow, but we'll see. It's certainly more interesting, I think, waking up tomorrow not knowing who that individual is. Right. We're going to be here all day tomorrow. So I want you to lozenge up. I want you to rest that voice. Do whatever you need to do tonight. I want to remind you guys again that the show's not close to done. I'm just reminding you right now because uh, we're about to wrap this portion. The 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. If you're not subscribed right now, I'm sure there'll be a long line in the morning. Don't wait in the line. Just go do it right now. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't get spammed in your inbox. It just helps us out, and it helps you out tomorrow. A lot of you have to go to work. It sucks, but maybe you have to do it tomorrow. Have that bad boy pulled up. Mute it when you have to. Pull up the spreadsheet when you have to, but you want to tune in all day tomorrow. Uh, we crank it up at 9 a.m. Eastern time. We go all the way to 5 p.m. Eastern time. That's when you want to scurry right on over here to the Late Kick YouTube channel because we'll have a special edition on our own tomorrow from 5 to whenever we feel like going off the air. Make sure you're tuned in. Andrew Ivins, we will see you bright and early in the morning, my friend. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to make sure that also before we get to our buddy Cole Kubelik, you remember we get to travel every week. We get to do this every week, I mean, all year. And we never have to come off our hip pocket, nor do you. The show just remains free. Uh, That is because of our friends at Academy Sports and Outdoors. This time of year, it's essential for you to have them in your life, even if you've spurned it the rest of the year. And I don't know why you would, but even if you have, this time of year, Academy Sports and Outdoors, in that final rush, that final lead up, to Christmas, their doors are open for you. Their website, academy.com, is open for you. So make sure, if you haven't already, do us a solid and do our friends a solid. They keep the show free for you. They've got stuff you need in your life regardless. You're going to buy it somewhere. Make sure you buy it from our friends at Academy Sports and Outdoors, academy.com, if you can't get there in person. Okay, so we hit 150,000 subs on this channel a couple of weeks ago. We're already at 163 now, but I've still got to pay up because I challenged you. You got there. I asked you what you wanted. You said collaborations. I asked who you wanted, and you didn't narrow it down. So I said, instead of just me choosing, we're going to have like two or three of them. The first of which is set to join us momentarily. SEC Network, um, ESPN, Morning Radio in Birmingham. Uh, He's got his own podcast. I'm about to tell you all about it in uh, about three or four seconds because here is our sit down. Really entertaining, really informative and insightful with our buddy Cole Kubler. No good university is good without the occasional speaker series. At Pate State, we're no different. And so we had to shake the cobwebs a little bit. We had to call up some contacts. We had to get some friends in the business to join us. You asked for three names in particular. One of them is going to appear right now. Cole Kubler joining us right around Christmas time, sir. How are you today? Merry Christmas. I'm great. I'm wondering what's up with the black t-shirt. Um, does that signify death of the show now that you're having me on as a guest? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't understand what's it's a, happening. Well, it's a good question. Um, it's personal. Didn't really want you to go there, but uh, it is what it is. So the only time I wear white is when we're doing the classical show. And this is anything but classical. I mean, you cornered <laughs> me in a lobby one time and said, well, why are you better than everyone? Why don't you have a co-host? Well, look, that's why you wear a white t-shirt every day. It's like a lot of people have asked me those questions. Why did you go to sixth grade three years in a row? Uh, the black shirt is what we wear every other time. Nebraska really doesn't have the black shirts anymore, but we do. And uh, it's tradition. We stick with it. Thoughts? I love it. Yeah, no, alternate uniform. It's big in recruiting these days. The kids love it. It gives you something to get excited about. It gives you something to look forward to. Um, I felt like Pate State would be a little bit more traditional, but I understand. It's a new era of college football, so you, you do what you got to do to be successful. But look, at least I'm not one of these dudes running around trying to tell you about how meaningless bowl season is. Okay, because no. we don't use that kind of vernacular around here. You, you've done bowl games, right? You already did one bowl game. You got, a, you got any more coming up? 
Uh, did Lending Tree Bowl radio. I've got Alamo Bowl with Tom and Jordan on TV, and I'll be in the booth for the Sugar Bowl, Alabama K State as well. So yes, I have a couple more. And no, we don't allow that in my house either. Now we don't we don't run a university in my house like you do yours, but um, I, I I can't handle the people that say bowl games are are meaningless. I, I just I, I won't allow it. I can't deal with it. First and foremost, as a player, I can tell you that. It was big for us to be able to go to bowl games. And it actually had less to do about the games themselves. Um, it had a lot more to do with the experience of being there. Um, we went to the Poulan Weed Eater Independence Bowl uh, my freshman year at Auburn. Found a way to get past Army. And don't really remember much from the game, but I can tell you that I saw Vanilla Ice perform twice in Shreveport that week. We'll never forget that. Made my first trip onto a casino boat. Uh, may or may not have had a friend who had a friend who was in the army that was also a Caucasian white male, and their identification was mistaken for my own. Um, went to the Peach Bowl in Atlanta, hung out with a bunch of dudes from Georgia, got to experience the Atlanta nightlife, went to the Citrus Bowl my senior year. Don't know if I was ever going to feed Shamu again at another point in life, but I was able to do that there. Uh, did Disney all of Christmas Day with my teammates. And those are, I mean, those are the things that you remember with the bowl game. Nowadays, they get PlayStation 11s and all the other stuff, so it's even more beneficial to go. But the extra practice time is big for a younger player. Uh, the waiver that the NCAA just threw in, now guys can play in the bowl and not have to worry about a redshirt season. And I'll tell you, that Lending Tree Bowl, like Frank Gore Jr., he, he puts the nail in the coffin of that game. That entire Southern Miss sideline is going bananas. Frank Gore Jr. is running up and down the sideline. His dad's there. His auntie, I guess, was there. We saw her after the game. Those kids are elated, going crazy. When Rice bounces back in early in the second half, they're jumping up and down, going nuts, going bananas. I'm sitting there, and all I could ever think of is, oh, but these are meaningless. These don't, these have no meaning. It's an opportunity to play football, to put pads on and play live tackle football. And no matter what level you're at, or no matter how long you do it professionally, there's still only a small number of times in the grand scheme of things that you're going to be able to do that. So. I think bowl games are great. I love them, and they have a lot of different meaning for a lot of different reasons. I had a guy come at me yesterday, and he said, these bowl games are meaningless. None of these kids care about them. I said, have you talked to the kids about that? He said, they're all opting out. I said, they're not all opting out, actually. I just watched a game where nobody opted out. It was probably the one you were doing. It's funny how the pre-Christmas bowls disproportionately feature teams that probably aren't loaded with rosters full of first-round talent. So, I mean, disproportionately, all those dudes are still bought in, but even when you get to the latter stages, I mean, you, you said you're going to be on the Sugar Bowl, which is inexplicably a morning kick central time, but that's its own little argument. Bryce Young playing, Will Anderson playing, like the top program in America over the last decade and a half doesn't seem to have a problem with players opting out this year. Here's, here's my side question, which is the most obvious question. What prison are you in right now where they're stapling your eyelids to the top of your forehead? And they are chaining you to those bars and rolling a TV in front of you like Hannibal Lecter style and making you watch those games. Just go out in the front yard. Just go down to Dairy Queen. Just, just leave me alone. That's the oldest front porch, like banging my hand on the railing rant that I ever have. It's when someone tells me bowl games are meaningless. Don't watch, brother. Go play intramurals. Go do something else with your time. <laughs> the TV on a cart in middle school that had the big strap over the top when you reeled it in for movie day. Yeah, they're, they're, they're wheeling that in and making you watch it on that. I'm all about more football, man. And I mean, I've, I'll consume it all. Tuesday night, Maction bowl game at 10 a.m. on a Friday. Let's go. We got 1.30 bowl games kicking off during the week. Like, I'm, I'm all about it. I, I, think, I think we should have more daytime regular season games. 
instead of jamming them all into 6.30 p.m. on Saturday night. Hey, do you uh, it's a reward for the players. It's another – it's a reason. And like you said, some of the earlier bowl games, like go watch that Troy defense and in, in the Cure Bowl. Go watch that Southern Miss defense that Austin Armstrong is doing a great job with in the Lending Tree Bowl, like getting after people's rear ends. Like safety's flying down. The, the tweet that I posted the video of, of the Troy interception, where you have a 205-pound safety flying past the man who intercepts the ball to take on an offensive lineman shoulder to shoulder. The old lineman tries to go down on him, by the way, and he goes down and meets him shoulder to shoulder. You're telling me it doesn't matter to that kid? And all he wants to do is help his teammate get more interception return yardage. Obviously it does. And so it's a chance to compete, a chance to perform, a chance to prove things. And then you just kind of get to the accomplishments that come with it. We haven't even talked about that. So Fresno State, back-to-back 10-win seasons, first time or third time in the history of program. UAB just won consecutive bowl games for the first time ever. They had never done it. It hadn't been done in the history of the program. Troy has more wins this year as an FBS program than they've ever had in the history of the program. So you have these little accomplishments with it. I mean, Southern Miss won three games last year. And now they finish with a winning record and they get a bowl win. I think they're both first bowl wins since 2013, but it, it doesn't matter. No, nobody cares. So. I love you so much for that. Hey, uh, you mentioned a couple of programs. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but man, what Summerall did at Troy this year, what Kane Troy. Womack did at South Alabama, and, and now you got Trent Dilfer as the head coach at UAB. Like past Bama and Auburn, it's an interesting time in the state of Alabama for college football. There's no doubt. And, and I think, too, the Sun Belt in general – it's going to be so much fun to watch next year. Southern Miss is going to have a lot of that defense back. Kane, see, I love, I love what Will Hall's doing at Southern Miss saying, because you know this better than I do because you follow recruiting more so than I do, but I've talked to a couple different people about it getting ready for that game. Recruiting Mississippi is just different. The, the, the kids are different. The way you do it is different. Obviously, the academics, the size of the schools, it's all very different. So they're taking very much a, a fatherly love approach to how they're recruiting, and you see how the kids reacted. Um, I see down with what Kane's doing in Mobile. I talked to him at the Senior Bowl last year. He's doing more of the Howard Snellenberger, like circle the 50-mile radius, except now you can do that in the portal. So you take that radius around Mobile, which we know how much talent's there every year, in the panhandle of Florida, and say, are you not happy? Would you like to come home? Would you like to play in a brand-new stadium? Great facilities. You get a chance to play in a very competitive league, and look how it's working out for him. And then what Coach Summerall did at Troy, man, they had 169 yards in the bowl game, and they won. I haven't seen a team in a long time. Like, they epitomized team football this year, finding different ways to win, running the football with Kamani Vidal, throwing the football with Gunnar Watson certain games, defense, five turnovers against UTSA. Like, they just go play hard. But he'll be the first one to admit, we always talk about buy-in, leadership, you know, having veterans on your team. Carlton Marshall, Richard Juniper came to him when he got the job and said, listen, tell us what to do, tell us how we're going to run it, and tell us what to run, and we'll take care of the rest for you. We'll get all the young guys on board. We'll lead this ship. We're going to be here for you. They bought in day one. So having some veterans, some older guys helps. But, man, there, is some, there are some programs on the rise and some great coaches in the state of Alabama that are not at Auburn and Alabama right now. So you did a game every week this year. You're on the road. You're actually on the sidelines doing reporting. You have to work during the game. I just get to stand there. But you, you get to meet with coaches a lot. You, I mean, you, did, you work with the SEC Network, so you meet a lot of SEC coaches. 
um, do me a favor and do, do folks who are watching this a favor. Number one, take them through a typical game week from a scheduling standpoint. And number two, when you interact with coaches, who are the best ones that give you probably some off the record stuff, but give you the most detail that you can contextualize that team with? Yeah. All right. So Sunday, I usually fly home. I try to get on the first flight out. So it's, you know, six, seven, something like that. Get home. As soon as I land, it's kid time for the next couple hours because I haven't seen them since Thursday morning because I go do morning radio in Birmingham. So then I don't I leave the house and I haven't seen them. So it's been three days. So I have seven, five and two. I try to play with them a couple hours. They get rest, nap time. And then I try to dive back into games and work. Um, I have a podcast that I do on Sundays. Usually don't get out till Sunday evening, just reviewing SEC games. I don't have enough time to really go much further past that. It'll be different in the offseason. And then it's turn the page. We usually find out who we have the next week on Thursday evening or Friday morning going into a weekend. We'll find out who we have the next week. Now, if you ever hear the dreaded six-day option, that means we're probably not finding out until late, late, late Saturday night or Sunday morning who we're going to have the next week. So then it's turn the page. Start to grind on the two teams that you have the next week. We do a production call on Tuesday mornings. Start talking about things that we want to get into, what we want to talk about. And then it's just get as much film, as much research in. The benefit that I have of just doing SEC games most weeks is I know coaches. I know guys who cover the team. I know assistants on every team. So when I get Kentucky, I've got my four or five guys that I call. All right, what's happening with this guy? What's happening here? Who do I need to talk about here? When I get Georgia, I call these guys. We talk about this guy's injuries, whatnot, who's going to play more. And a lot of times those are guys on the staff that I can have a conversation with or what it is not. And so then we go to town. I go Thursday evening. I'll do my radio show from the hotel Friday morning. And then we have coaches meetings. So we usually get head coach, both coordinators, most times a player or two. Sometimes it's just the coaches. It depends. Um, if, the co if the opposite team is staying in town, We'll go meet with them at their hotel that evening. So usually Friday, 4.30, 5.30, something like that. And we'll have the same situation. We'll meet with the coaches and players. If they're not close, and it's a school like Ole Miss, they usually kind of stay out of town. We'll do Zoom calls with them during the week, and then we'll get that over with. Some coaches just still like to do the Zoom calls. We'll knock those out during the week. Then Saturday morning, we have our production meeting for the actual game. We go through graphics, storylines, things we want to talk about, what we're going to do in our open um, you know, certain guys that we want to watch, we'll talk to guy, the, the producer director about our cameraman need to focus in on certain guys. Like, do we want to follow Trey Smith for an entire drive? And let me just talk about offensive line play. So Jordan doesn't have to waste everybody's time talking about routes and coverages, things that nobody cares about. And so we kind of hammer all that out, get to the stadium about two and a half hours for kick. That's when the good stuff really happens. Because once you get in the stadium, Josh, and you've probably had this just floating around talking to people, I usually go out to the 50, both teams warming up. We always see the coaches come shake hands. That's where you get an assistant coach, you know, running back coach or a coordinator, and it's just like everything comes out. They have no concern about injuries, about what they're going to do, not going to do, who's playing, not playing. Like they let it all out then. That's when I get my best information. So then I got to go jam everything back in, have a conversation with Tom and Jordan, have a conversation with our producers, say, hey, we're going to have to talk about this or we're going to have to get to this or whatever it is. Um, and then obviously we get going as far as meetings, everybody's pretty good to us. Like we, we don't have anybody that's just, that's just not, not good. Doesn't offer good information. And I think it would surprise people. Coach Saban, for example, he's awesome. It's just, you have to know what to talk to him about. So you can't, he doesn't want to talk about injuries. He doesn't want to talk about, 
a lot of, you know, sort of sort of the BS topics or whatever. Like, there was one time Tom asked Coach Saban, and, and seriously, he told me he was going to do this. And I literally looked over at Josh Max in the SID, and I said, hey, this, I interrupted. I said, before he asked this, I, I'm out. And I looked at Saban, and I said, I want you to know I'm not a part of this. He asked Coach Saban, so getting towards the end of the year, do you um, – do you do leave guys in games a little bit longer if it's a blowout to try to help push them for individual awards? And I mean, I'm in like he start. That's when Coach Samus starts rocking and tapping his foot a little bit, and I'm just like, oh god, here it comes. <laughs> and so I mean, but if you talk to like the the best example I have is going into the Vanderbilt game last year. Obviously, they had a big 50-50 ball wide receiver, and I'm asking Coach. I said, I was like, how do how do you coach a DB to play a back shoulder fade? Because we see it all the time. And when some guys play it great, some guys look lost. I know your guys are going to get it this week. Can you just kind of take us through the coaching points? He stands up and starts taking us through the technique and the fundamentals of how he coaches it, where your eyes have to be, how your shoulders have to be, what they're reading on a wide receiver. It was incredible stuff. Like he's sitting there, he is coaching us in the meeting room. But you just have to understand those are the things that he loves talking about. Um, and so that, I mean, that, that meeting was, was incredible. Like he, was, he told us about the eyes on a DB read a receiver's hips. I have never heard this. I've been around football a long time. I did not know a DB reads a receiver's hips when they're coming out of their stance. So you get those things from him that are remarkable. And he actually spends a lot of time with us. But some of the guys over the years, like Kevin Steele is – I mean, he's basically like a, a college football storybook when you meet with him. I mean, he'll just be talking to you like, well, I remember back in, you know, 94 when at Nebraska and Tommy Frazier, we ran this play. And I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable his memory and the detail and the things he goes into. And he's just, he's always fun. Um, Sam Pittman is a joy. Like, Open book, honest, holds nothing back. You see exactly why his team reacts to him the way that they do because it's no BS, it's no nonsense. You ask him a question, he's like, well, this and this and this. And you're kind of like, I can't believe you just said that, but that's pretty amazing. And a lot of it's off the record. Um, Marcus Satterfield's a name that will probably surprise you. Uh, offensive coordinator at South Carolina last year, going to Nebraska. Like, you talk about a no-holds-barred, no-nonsense does not give a damn, will tell you anything and be bluntly obvious about it. Like, I mean, he just lays it out there. And it, but we appreciate that because it's no coach speak. Uh, like, Coach Golis at Tennessee was great last year. He was fun. Maybe the best all time, though, would be Jeremy Pruitt because everything that I just said and then some. And, you know, you get the accent and you get kind of the quirkiness. And, I mean, Jeremy was just, I man, y'all got, y'all got best job in America. <laughs> I could, I would love, y'all y'all do is just watch film and get paid for that. Like I would trade jobs with y'all in a heartbeat. And I'm thinking they're like, yeah, coach, you're making 5 million, man. I would trade with you too. Like, let's like, when you're ready to flip this script, just, just tell me I'll trade paychecks tomorrow. Um, but he was just so honest and he knows ball. And so that's the best part too. Like you can ask him any kind of scheme question and he's like, boom, 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 brings it up right away. So all these guys in this league are awesome. And this, I think it's because we get them often. They know us. They trust us. We haven't burned them. Like, Lane is great. You would think that he's, he's not great, but he's awesome. Like, he, I love talking football with Lane Kiffin. He's fantastic. Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head other guys that we, that we love kind of meeting with. But it's – like, Coach Stoops is great. And he'll give you – like, he gets going in old Youngstown stories and 
talking about his brothers and stuff like that's that could be really cool and he's very direct and very honest with us about his guys so they're all a little bit different in how they approach it and how they answer questions but man it's cool to be able to sit there and just talk ball with all those guys let me tell you what i've what i've eventually found a way to do so the first thing i've noticed is those guys um, instinctively don't trust anyone nor would i if i were in their position but if you gain their trust and they realize you're going to talk to them on a level they want to talk on, then all of a sudden there's this detachment and they go from not trusting you, won't give you anything to you're looking at them saying, I can't believe you're giving me this. And that, ha that happens like that once yep. you instill the trust. The other thing is, and here's what's been really fun slash humbling for me, if you ask them to give you feedback on your work on air, they can't wait to do it because they've, they've got opinions on everyone, but nobody in our business has ever gone to them and said, coach, I want your pure, unadulterated feedback. And they'll give it to you, man. It's brutal. It's always negative, but in a positive way, if that makes any sense. It's been a huge help, man. That's like, that's been the biggest unsung blessing, I think, of getting the access that we get. You get feedback that doesn't come from a consulting firm. It doesn't come from someone in a production suite. It comes from someone that's actually out there on the field of battle that you only, you only sit off to the side and you talk about. It's wild, though, when you finally get that. Well, and sometimes you get it without asking because it's, it's what you did in other places. So there, there are a couple of coaches that will say, yeah, I heard what you said about our defense two weeks ago on Feinbaum. Or, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I heard that interview with so-and-so when you were talking about my quarterback. I, I, I saw it. Not good. Not <laughs> They're not afraid to tell us that. And, and here's the other part, too, that I think has this was a realization I had a, a year and a half, two years ago, and it took me a while to kind of get it, is that we all think that there's one language we speak to these coaches and it's football. Right. But you have to go a step further than that. Each coach speaks a different language of football. Yeah. And once you learn that. Mike Leach was a perfect example of that. That's why Mike Leach was my biggest professional challenge that I've ever had. Now, some people might think that it was Nick Saban because, you know, he does, he, he's, he's brash with the media, whatever it is. It's just not true, first and foremost. Or, you know, Jim Harbaugh, who sprints off the field. I had the Peach Bowl with him one time. I'm literally running, just trying to get one. Jim, you're a quarterback trying to get in. And I think he kind of respected that I tried. So he slowed down and gave me like a one-word answer and then ran back in the tunnel. But it, with Nick Saban, it's football detail, man. Like, that's what he wants. I tried to get creative with Coach Leach, and I would say things like they had some protection breakdowns against Kentucky. I tried to, I'm, I don't remember exactly how I said it, but I, I phrased my question something like, you know, Coach, your, your quarterback's having some protection issues. The fortress that is your kingdom that protects him, how do you better fortify that for the second half? Hoping that he would go some art of war like World War II novel that he had read something or other, and he would like, mess the two worlds together. I sat on the field with him before that game. I tucked my microphone, like I had my microphone like this, like I tucked it right here and I had my arms crossed. Yeah. And I just started asking him random questions, thinking we'd get something good for the game. We actually used like two of his answers. My first question, I said, Coach, if, if Will Rogers was a dinosaur, what kind of dinosaur would you want him to be? And I mean like no hesitation whatsoever. He said, well, I, I would want him to be um, one that was fast enough to get away from bigger and badder dinosaurs so he wouldn't get eaten. And I was like, that's a wacky answer, but it, it's perfect. Like, you want your quarterback to not take sacks so he can get away from big, bad defensive linemen that are coming after him. So, ask him, like, Mountain Lake, 
Which would he choose? He went back and forth on that. I asked him lobster, shrimp. He went mussels. I mean, it's, some of it has nothing to do with anything. He doesn't like to talk about football a bunch, but you have to understand, like, that's his language. So try to speak it to him in his language. With Like with Lane Kiffin, for example, I've gotten to the point with Lane, either halftime or postgame, I literally walk up to him and just hold my microphone out. <laughs> and he, he starts talking. I don't even have to ask him anything. So you have to understand that there's a football language that's different for every coach. And once I realized that, it became a lot easier and I got much better answers with where I wanted to go. Like Kirby is, he wants to talk football, but he, he enjoys other parts of it a little bit more. Like he wants to talk about what a win means for different reasons. He wants to talk about why his guys got to where they got. He's big on giving credit to his players and why they accomplished certain things. So I try to lead him into those kind of answers with the questions that I ask. But it's a great point that you bring up because it's, yes, we speak football to all these guys, but they all speak their own individual football language. I think Kirby's probably the best example I know of in college football right now of a guy who keeps the main thing the main thing, but at the same time is aware of the overarching, is aware yes. of what's being said, is aware of what will be said when something happens, and they can claim all they want to that they don't pay attention to it. I think he does, but the benefit in the uniqueness of him is it doesn't really, it never impacts what they do. It's, it's an awareness. Like I'm awareness, uh, I'm aware of what the high temperature in Juneau, Alaska is today. It's not going to impact how I dress. He's aware of what everyone says about him. It just doesn't impact it. I think if you can balance that now, you're, you're fine. And you also, you sound informed because nothing in a press conference ever takes you off guard because you already know what's being said. Look, uh, they're in the playoff. They are playing Ohio State. I thought they were going to draw TCU, but they're not. This is the game I'll be at. Um, do you have some initial thoughts on this? Because I... I keep picking up on this talking point that everyone thinks Ohio State just got physically bodied by Michigan again. And I've been at that game two years in a row, and I thought it was probably true last year. I don't necessarily know that it was true this year, but the scoreboard looks the same, so people think the same thing happened. Um, I don't think Georgia's just going to physically run Ohio State out of the building. I do lean Georgia to win the game. Where are you on this right now? Yeah, I, I thought a couple of weeks ago I was asked Georgia or the field, and I, I took the field because Ohio State was still included, USC was still included, TCU was included. Like we had all these offenses that could put up all these points, and I'm thinking, man, if one of these groups gets hot going into the playoff and they make it, then there could be a chance nobody's stopping them. So I've kind of reversed course on that after the SEC championship game. I just I think Georgia and Michigan are playing the best team football of anybody in the country right now, specifically the teams left in the college football playoff. That offensive line's playing at a high level. I love the ball distribution. As long as Stetson Bennett plays low-risk football, Georgia wins a national championship. And you really have to dive into this, Josh. You have to really go kind of take a close peek at it. There were games in the middle of the season, and I'm not going to accuse him because I'm not inside his helmet. I don't know what he's thinking. He appeared to be a little bit bored to me. There were some throws, go to the Florida game, I know, for example, would be one. There were a couple of others, maybe the Tennessee game, where he just took some chances that normally no quarterback would. Tried to fit some balls in some, some windows that were just closed, like the blinds were closed. And bounced off defenders, breastplate, bounced off defenders, face mask. Didn't turn into interceptions. But you look at that and say, okay, there could be times down the road that if he attempts to play that kind of football, it could end up being problematic. But then you see games like the SEC championship game when he's super clean and super efficient and not playing 
high risk football and Georgia just looks unstoppable. So I think what I said about Georgia last year is still applicable in a lot of ways that physically no one can really match up with them across the board. Now they were a little more of this last year, but still, when you look at Darnell Washington, you look at Amarius Mims, you look at just uh, different players across the board and what they offer up physically, there are not a lot of teams that can go toe-to-toe with that. Well, then you add elite athleticism. Then you add in quarterback that can manage, run, direct the offense at a high level, and a defense that has just been smothering people at a high rate. I'm not as afraid of what LSU did through the air as some other people are. I do think it has a chance to be problematic. Um, I'm very interested in a couple of things, like minute details of this game. Georgia off the edge. Can they get home? Because I don't think that middle pressure is as important against Ohio State as it is some other teams. One, the ball comes out really quick. Two, they can hurt you on the perimeter a little bit more than they can in the middle of the field. So C.J. Stroud doesn't rely on stepping up in the pocket as much as a lot of other quarterbacks. It's not that he never does it, but it's not like Joe Burrow in 2019 where he was going to climb, 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 balls out and where middle pressure would affect them a little bit more. We know Georgia's going to be able to affect things in the middle. Can they consistently get things off the edge? I think the Ohio State offensive line's a little bit overrated. Um, I think their tackles are big. I have this saying that say, look how big. People just see offensive linemen that are 370 or 380, and they think that all of a sudden they're just good. It doesn't work that way. But they are massive, so you at least have to get around them to be able to affect the passing game and the quarterback. Um, I love Cade Stover at tight end. I think he's the most physical football player they have, period. Uh, but I don't think they're just going to be able to run the ball at Georgia. I, I, matter of fact, I don't think they have a ton of success running the ball, period. Because uh, Dumas Johnson's really coming into his own, more of a sideline, sideline player. I think he can be a guy that helps them in pressure packages as well. But I just think physically, they, to an extent, they will overmatch Ohio State. It's not going to be a, hey, we're going to line up and run it 60 times. There's nothing you can do about it type game or where Ohio State just won't be able to get the ball off. But physically, I do think Georgia will be a problem. And I think their balance on offense is critical. I mean, they're, they're running the ball better right now than they have all year. Multiple tight ends that can hurt you in different ways. They can motion. They can go fast. They can shift. They're, they give you so much to defend. It's not even about how great all their players are on offense. And I thought the SEC championship game was a perfect example. They ran, I mean, they ran duo. They ran inside zone. They ran split zone. They ran counter. They ran power. They ran into round. And that doesn't even include the screen game that you get to, and then your traditional pass game, and then the quick pass game, the RPO game. It's a lot, Josh, that you have to defend. And I think Ohio State has a couple takeover guys on defense, but collectively, I don't know how great that group is. So I, I like Georgia. I'm not going to say about three touchdowns, but fairly comfortably to get that game against Ohio State. So you mentioned the different looks and how multiple Georgia's been offensively this year. In some games where they didn't have to be, but it builds to sort of a crescendo where you want to peak at the right time. So Stats and Info here had this excellent stat they pulled up, and I'm so curious how it pans out. So Ohio State pass defense, just statistically they're not great, but defending running backs and tight ends, three of the four of which are Georgia's leading receivers, then you got Ladd McConkie. Ohio State pass defense against tight ends and running backs, second in the country. They're like 109 against wide receivers, which is why I think A.D. Mitchell's a very important player in this game. They finally got him back. But here's the other thing. That stuff is statistically in a bubble. It, it's how you, f- you can scheme guys open, and they, they did it in the SEC championship game, 
And so there's a difference in you defending a traditional inline tight end that sometimes spills out for a five-yard out versus what Georgia does with Brock Bowers or versus what Georgia does with Darnell Washington. Also, they're probably more integral than the run game, and you got to honor it a little bit more. So I'm very interested, like, when we get midway through the second quarter, is that stat carrying water, or does Bowers have four for 72 already, and it's just they're going to do what they normally do? No, I think also at that point, like you're talking about, the, defending those certain players, to me – like defending a running back in the passing game, what percentage of that would be checkdowns? I mean, I, I would assume it would be fairly high just because there are not a lot of teams whose second or third read is going to be the back out of the backfield. Um, and then obviously from, from a tight end perspective, it's nice to have, but like you said, now Georgia's going to have multiple on the field at the same time. So you don't just have to defend one. And then you have one that is a physical brutality matchup. And then you have another that's a speed and athleticism matchup. So they'll offer different guys in different ways. So that would be fun to watch. I, I agree. I, I'm The part of that that would make it difficult for me to say would be truly impactful is where is the Georgia running game when that becomes important? Yeah. Because if they're sitting on 11 carries for 78 yards and it's early in the game, does it matter if a back's catching the ball out of the backfield? Does it matter if a tight end's truly involved? Because we've seen, I guess you see championship game, they they went to 19 a lot early. It was like, okay, boom, we're getting him in. But there have been other games, and on my Sunday takeaways, I, there were multiple times the first thing I typed is, want to see more 19, wish there were more 19, force it to 19. Because I want him to be involved. I just think he's that good of a football player. So I'll be interested to see where the running game is, let's say, after the first quarter, because I think that dictates how important it is that a tight end receives the ball, has to receive the ball, or a running back is getting involved in the passing game. Hey, Darnell Washington, he's the fourth leading receiver on Georgia's team right now. He plays at 6'7", 270. What was the average height weight of offensive tackles when you played? Oh, not 6'7". Well, we had some 6'6s, um, but we did have a couple of big tackles. Like, Victor Riley was probably, well, he was probably floating around 340 a lot of the time. Should have been playing 320. So Marcus Curry was in the 330s, I think. Uh, Kendall Mack was probably like 315. So I would probably say six, four and a half, three, eighteen, probably the average, somewhere around there. No receptions. Dude, he, he, I mean, he is, first off, he's not 270. When I had him in the spring game two years ago, I said, Kirby, is this kid really 270 pounds? He's like, Cole, he's 285. Yeah, he's huge. Um, and then you, like Jordan said this when we had the Missouri game. The first thing he walked down on the field and said, you do not have an appreciation for Darnell Washington until you see him on the field. And it's crazy because he has offensive tackle shoulders. He has an offensive tackle rear end, but he has like an inside linebacker waist. And, and he has like a defensive end ankle. Did you yell it's the ankle? Dude, the thinness of the ankles is wild. It's like you look at it and say, those ankles are supporting this frame? I'm not going to ask how. I don't know how, but it, the shoulders is a good point. I never thought about it that way. He is He's so wide. There's no gut. There's nothing. When, you, when a normal person weighs 285, they're mostly not 6'7", but there's just sloppy weight, and there's no sloppiness on him at all. I looked at Stacey Searles, their offensive line coach, and I said, if you could have him for a year at tackle, how much money could you make him? Because <laughs> I'm making the richest tackle to ever play the game. He's like, he's that athletic. He's that strong. He said if he would buy into it and become a tackle, he's like he could be the best tackle to ever play. Like he's he's that gifted. But you see what he can do there tight end. I mean, why would you why would you want to move to tackle when people throwing you the football 
you're jumping over DBs, you're high pointing the ball, you're stepping on people. And the thing that I love about him, and this was after year one at Georgia when we had him in the spring game, I said, Kirby, man, it's, it, he's like a willing blocker. Like he, he actually gets out there and tries, which in today's football is almost all you can ask for unless you're Iowa or Michigan or Georgia. Like if your tight end just tries, you're usually pretty happy. And he's like, no, Cole, he takes pride in it. He wants to be good at it. Like he wants to, he understands hat placement, hand placement. Like he goes and works with the offensive line coach. And that's where he's really improved as a blocker, like point of attack. He will drive people off the ball. He's really fun in the screen game because he's basically a tackle when he gets out there in space, running over corners and safeties. And he's athletic enough to not be like us fat linemen where he just falls on his face and trips up trying to redirect. So he's a hell of a football player, man. And it's just, it is, I call him a Vince McMahon first round draft pick is where he could go to pro wrestling tomorrow and just have a, a million dollar career because you just don't get guys that big that can move that way. I know you didn't get to see as much of TCU this year. You've seen Michigan because you just helped them win the Joe Moore Award. Well, they won it. You participated in giving them the award. Um, give me some thoughts on this because I'm looking at it and I'm thinking the inverse of what I said about Georgia and Ohio State. I mean, if they get in a phone booth, I don't even need to watch the game. I know how that's going to go. What's, what's really interesting to me is TCU's got probably the more underrated back of any of these four teams left. Yeah. they got Quentin Johnson, who's like a bona fide first-round type out wide. And they've got a guy who can actually get him the ball. So if they can pop on the perimeter early and if they can put Michigan behind, which is a point Michigan's been in multiple times this year, great second half team. But if they can put him behind, that gives them a chance. If they get out in the deep end and that's a tie game, it's totally in Michigan's wheelhouse. So that line's like seven and a half or eight right now. Uh, give me some thoughts on that one. I would probably, even with those points, play Michigan in this game uh, and we should probably think that the second half is going to be incredible because these two teams, I think, are the best second-half teams in college football. Statistically, I'm not just not my opinion. Um, I Michigan's not going to want to get this thing into a track meet. I think TCU has to go full track meet mode, pace, tempo, ball out quick, ball on perimeter. And, yes, Kendra Miller is incredible. Um, but I just don't know if you're going to be able to go right at that defense with him. It's got They have to find creative ways to make space, to get defenders out of position. I think you see a lot of misdirection. You'll see some end around. You'll see guys lined up in different places. You'll see formations into the boundary. I think Sonny Dykes has to force Michigan to misalign a lot of the time and basically be able to steal yards. And then by stealing those yards, they have got to turn them into explosive plays. TCU has to have explosive plays to win this game. It's not, they're not going to be able to grind out points and win. And I agree with you. If this thing's even tight, close, uh, a one or two score game, even like 10, 14 points at halftime, I, I think Michigan just throttles down. They go into four wheel low in the second half and that offensive line will get lathered up and, and they'll just walk away with it. I, I thought Jim Harbaugh was completely bananas in fall camp. And you remember the quote too. And he said, I think this defense will be better than last year's. And we're like, well, no, we just saw the two edge guys you lost. That's not going to be possible collectively this defense might be better they are stingy they can be aggressive when they need to they play quality football at the point of attack strike and shed utilizing hands physicality and then they're able to get to the quarterback which is something i didn't think they would be anywhere near as good at this year as they were a season ago the physical portion of this game is what's going to be the difference and i just i find it very hard to believe that tcu is going to be able to match up do you, you think about this for a second, just from a head coach's perspective. 
Um, Sonny Dykes, I think the story tells itself. This is the the college football playoff team in all the years we've had one with the longest preseason odds to win the title. I think it was like 200 to 1. Uh, this Michigan team has the fourth longest odds ever. Uh, Sonny Dykes, I don't even think he had to move if he didn't want to. He just takes another job across town. First year there, boom, they're in the playoff. And we're undefeated into the conference title game. This time last year, Michigan was going to the playoff. They lose a game. Dude, Harbaugh interviewed for the Vikings job on signing day. Actual national signing day. Everyone else is wrapping up a class. He's trying to get an NFL job. Both of his coordinators are gone. He loses those two edge guys. We're watching them in the combine a month later. And if you were to just hit pause there, and then you were to cryogenically freeze someone, and you wake them up right now, how would you, how, if that was you, if you were frozen, how would you have been able to conceptualize uh, Sonny Dykes is going to be in the playoff, and oh, by the way, Harbaugh is going to face him in the playoff? How do, so much you would think has to go wrong. Ohio State must have just lost three or four games. That wasn't what happened. They just beat them. They were just flat out better even than they were last year. TCU, it's not like they were a two-loss team. It's not like they were 07 LSU. They were undefeated until the finish line. Then you had one loss at the finish line. Their resume is still good enough to get in. It's just, it's why I always laugh when people say in the preseason, we don't even need to play the games. We know who's going to make it. Fool, you never know who's going to make it. The same four teams have never made it. You're going to have the same teams in it. Like Bama's going to be there. You got to knock them off. Ohio State's going to be there. You got to knock them off. Well, someone knocked them off. And so now you've got fresh blood in there. It's just wild to me. Like you could tell the story of these two head coaches for the next 20 years, and I don't think you'll have a playoff matchup that tops what we're seeing right now. What about what you just said about Harbaugh to last year? Go back even another year when he had to redo his contract with the administration because oh, yeah. they were trying to run him. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll take less just to kind of stay here and I guess make everybody happy because you don't know what you're going to do and I'm not really sure what I was going to do. I mean, they're trying to push the guy out of town. And now he's got back-to-back playoff appearances. I think one thing that Jim has done is he has built the foundation of a football team that maybe, and again, I don't, it's hard to say it, it truly is or isn't Josh right now because we don't really know exactly where college football is going. Like we are, we are on a road with no road signs. The exit ramps don't tell us what number it is or where it's off to. Like, we, we kind of have no – there's no GPS to where we're going right now in college football. But there's a good chance that the foundation in which he's built his team on may be a little bit easier to replicate year after year after year. Physicality, run game, defense, plug explosive players in different areas. You get a, you get a takeover guy at defensive end, great. Our structure – is going to make us really good. But now we add him, we become dominant. Our structure offensively is going to be really good. Add a quarterback who's more capable and a group of receivers who gets more opportunity. Now, I've heard you talk about this multiple times, and you said it brilliantly. It's not that they didn't have talent at receiver last year. It's that the receivers have more opportunity this year. It's kind of the same thing that happened with Tennessee. I mean, Jeremy Pruitt was telling us about Jalen Hyatt and how good he was going to be. Well, what did Josh Heupel do? He gave Cedric Tillman, Jalen Hyatt, more opportunities to show what they're capable of. So you get a quarterback that gives those receivers more opportunity, and you're explosive at tailback, not just one, but two. So maybe that foundation is a little easier to carry over because it's not as reliant on elite quarterback or it's not as reliant on a larger group of individuals on your team. 
year after year after year. I, I don't know if it plays out that way, but maybe how he's built it, you know, he and Sean Moore and those guys right now will be able to carry that over a little bit more. I mean, hell, they're dominating the portal with offensive linemen now. I mean, you get a starter from Arizona State, two starters from Stanford, I think some five-star just committed. So maybe that's going to be easier to carry over once you build it that way than finding receivers and quarterbacks to have to replace to go out and be a dominant football team. Yeah, they got the linebacker from Nebraska yesterday, too. I think the point you're making there, they're not star-dependent. Like, when they lose a guy, when they lose an Aiden Hutchinson, there's a reason people made a big deal about it, because he's a good player, and conventional college football wisdom tells you that leaves a massive vacuum of a void. There's no way that team, the generic team, is going to be as good as they were last year. Well, it depends on the foundation that he played on. What platform did he play on? I actually think of all these programs out there, a program like Michigan, they've probably built themselves to be the biggest beneficiary of the portal. Ironically, it was their in-state neighbor. It was Michigan State that took a bunch of kids and had a good year last year, but it may be Michigan where I'm not telling you you have to come in and save my entire program. I got that taken care of. I'm going to put you on a really big pedestal here. You you don't have to shoulder the entire load. You can come in and do what you do. Uh, We're going to win, win or without you, but if you come in, we'll probably both benefit from it. I want to ask you about Hugh Freeze for just a second. Uh, We watched that coaching search play out. And uh, coaching searches never happen if there wasn't a guy there before that's out the door. So you got Harson. everything happens with him, he's out the door. Um, you and I had similar thoughts on the way that was handled. I'll let you talk as much as you want to about that. But that entire process that leads to Hugh Freeze coming in, now that we're a little bit removed from it, give me your take on how that all played out. Well, from the Harson perspective, it's I, I think there is fault on both sides. Um, yeah, obviously, the recruiting wasn't going the way that it needed to go, uh, but he was handcuffed in certain areas. There were certain things that happened from certain individuals that made his job very difficult. Now, I also think that there are some people inside the athletic department, some aren't there anymore, that could have gone further in making his job a little bit easier or giving him a better chance to succeed. Um, you look at what he did the first six games of his first year. I mean, what are we talking about right now if Bo Nix doesn't get hurt? Everybody likes to look at it and say, well, what if Tank Bisbee doesn't go out of bounds? What if Bo Nix doesn't wreck his ankle? Like, where are we? I, I don't know. And it still probably wasn't going to work out long term, but he may have had a better opportunity to make that thing successful. So that doesn't work out. I, I don't think over the course of six, eight, ten years it was going to work. So then you have to have a coaching search. And I think John Cohen did a good job of vetting a lot of folks. He did his due diligence on who may work and who may be best. Um, what I think about what offers or agreements were in place before it became Hugh Freeze is irrelevant now, but they fall back to Hugh Freeze. And I, I do believe that there was an offer made before him. Um, I agree that I believe that offer was accepted in some way and then not accepted in another way. But Hugh becomes the head coach. And I think Hugh Freeze has got a really good chance to win a lot of games at Auburn. I'm, I'm not going to step out and say national championship or win the West next year or be dominant, but I think he has a great chance to find a lot of success. Number one, the top of the totem pole is aligned with Hugh Freeze at Auburn University and beyond, I guess I should say. So not necessarily all direct affiliation. The people who want to make the call wanted Hugh Freeze. That is inherently good for Auburn right now. I thought a couple of years ago it was inherently good that they went a completely different direction, that they got outside of the old family and the good old boy network. 
and they went and found a guy that could just come coach ball. Well, that blew up in Auburn's face. So that I, I was proven wrong there. This is different. This is a guy that a lot of folks that matter, a lot of folks that give a lot of money want in place. I think that will help. The NIL situation is healthy. That's obviously going to help. His ties to the league, the offense that he runs, is going to help. Now, that roster needs to be flipped, so I don't think it's going to happen next year. But with the buy-in across the board, with people who are affiliated with Auburn, the success that he's had in the past, I think he's brought in a good staff. I think he's got a good chance to go win a lot of football games. Now, they've got to get players to do it, and they got some good coaches on that staff that can help them win. But I think there is a, there's a really good chance that Hugh Freeze can find a lot of success for a long time. You know, how, the most simplistic way to gauge the effectiveness of a coaching hire is this. Meemaw used to tell me this all the time. How do your rivals react when they first hear the news? I don't mean the fan bases. I mean, when Nick Saban found out Auburn had hired Hugh Freeze, I really don't think he gave a quiet fist bump. I don't think Kirby said, all right. Because both of them dealt with him over at Alabama for a few years, and both of them understand, I I don't care if he beat them two times in a row or they beat him at the gun two times in a row. They weren't easy offenses to deal with. Uh, They were a thorn in the side of some of the folks that he'll play every year. And as for the outside criticism, and, and there was a healthy amount of internal criticism, I was frankly taken aback by how much internal criticism from the Auburn fan base there was, but I get it even though I was surprised by it and may disagree a little bit with it. As for the external, you better hope your rivals are criticizing your hire. If they're patting you on the back and telling you, good for you guys, uh, you're going to be looking for a new guy in 24 months. I agree with everything you said, and, and I actually feel a little bit different about it. Um, the, the, stuff at, the stuff at Liberty... I don't think people have done their due diligence on looking into exactly, most importantly, when and how those things took place. Is it excusable? No. Still bad decisions should never happen. Um, now looking back at some of the stuff at Ole Miss, there are, there are some things that could be considered egregious. Obviously, the personal items, I'd be the last one to jump on here and say that somebody who screwed up in their past doesn't deserve another chance because I've had plenty and I've screwed up bad, and some of my mistakes have been in the public eye, and people still want to talk about those with me. But you move on, you live from it, you learn from it, you become a better person. So I'm, I'm not going to point a finger at that. My biggest concerns, Josh, and I'll just be honest with you, and I would tell Hugh if he and I had this conversation, it, it's, it's mentally and, and physically dealing with what you're going to deal with. Because unfortunately for him, the rival fan bases of Auburn University know exactly what gets to him. And we've seen the back and forth about social media, if it's his, if it's not his, school, contract, whatever. Every Alabama fan knows what gets to him. Every Georgia fan knows what gets to him. And now you have a built-in enemy in Ole Miss, a built-in enemy in Mississippi State, and your former boss is working at A&M. That's a lot of built-in animosity and enemy firepower that you're going to have to deal with every single day. I do radio in Birmingham, Alabama. I understand what that fan base is capable of. So that's the part that I have a bigger concern about. It's nothing from 10 years ago or five years ago. I just, the personality and the defense mechanisms, that's got to change. And that's something that's got to be managed and under control because it can distract you and it can become a problem. And if he can manage that, 
then I think he puts a lot of my concerns to rest on just how much success he'll really have. I've actually never even thought about it from that point of view. I've always thought this in recent history was the toughest job in college football when you marry your schedule and expectation. It's uniquely challenging because of the guy they just hired. Here, I, okay, so I'll build off that. He may change things for six months and be fine. It's really tough at his age, at any age, it's tough to turn that kind of characteristic off. That is, that's, and it, you know your family's hearing it too. That is hard to do. Hey, would you consider yourself an Auburn good old boy? Are you a member of that network? Um, considering how many people ask me for my advice on important decisions, I would say absolutely not. Um, there, there are not too many important people that give a damn about, uh, what I think or what I say. So well, I guess look, not. No. If we continue to scale cube show, the pod, if we continue to scale Mac and cube that, that eventually goes from just Birmingham to national. I think it's only a matter of time. Uh, if we continue to scale that sideline work with sec network and ESPN, those pockets are eventually going to be so deep, they can't say no. Like, <laughs> you, you will do in Homewood what's being done down in Abbeville, Alabama. Insiders understand what I'm talking about there. Uh, could be one year, could be two years, but you, we're going to make a good old boy out of you. Well, um, we'll see. We'll get there. I want the best for Auburn. I want Auburn to be great, but um, I don't know if I have the pockets to be able to consider to be in that club um, yet or ever. Yeah, well, if you're drawing a paycheck, period, you can be a booster at Pate State, brother. I appreciate you joining us. Um, is there anything else you need to plug that I did not plug? No, I think you, I think you nailed it all. Unfortunately, there's a lot of things, but uh, we're trying to make them go. Just dealing with McElroy every morning, jocksfm.com, and then, uh, yeah, shoot that podcast out on Sundays. Just, I think we need more college football content on Sundays. That's why I appreciate your show Sunday nights. And you know good and well, when I'm up at 5.30 in the studio, I'm sending you texts and pictures of what you talked about the night before because I can't stay up for it. I'm too damn tired on Sunday nights in the season, but I do catch up on Monday mornings. So you helped me greatly with my prep there. Hey, um, Rogers has the wheels up deal. Where's the private aviation for you? Um, Yeah, that's at, um, that's at Homewood Toy and Hobby. They have, uh, they have remote control airplanes and I I might be able to afford one of those. And we're going to use that to send my charts from one place to the other. And uh, hopefully that'll, that'll cut down on the airfare uh, for my travel. Goods. Yeah, that's uh, that's not in. My wheels are always down. <laughs> I'm ending on that. Cool, Kubrick. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you guys joining us. Make sure you like the video. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. For director Colin, for producer Jesse, for the inaugural speaker in the Pate State Speaker Series. Cool, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great rest of your evening.